All right, so please stand with me. We'll start with a prayer. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant in us also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things are so well-pleasing unto thee, for thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee we ascribe glory together with thine unoriginate Father, an old holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is in So the books that I read from, one of them is called The Garden of the Holy Spirit. And this is kind of a funny, my daughter always laughs at this icon because it looks like they superimposed an actual picture of St. Yakovos onto a painting of his body. She's like, that doesn't look quite but right. But uh, it's about the life of St. Yakovos of Evia. When I, when I first started exploring Orthodoxy, I was approaching it from a biblical Standpoint. I was a Bible and theology student, but I always struggled with not wanting my, my faith to be a matter of the intellect, of the head. For me, I never considered myself intellectual, even though I can sound pretty philosophical and technical sometimes, but I always considered myself to be more of a person of the heart than of the head. And uh, I thought, you know, what really needs to happen is we need to, well, in the school I went to, we had different, I went to a, a Protestant school, we had different departments, and one was ministry, one was Bible and theology, and the ministry people were always more like the, they were claiming to be more of the heart people, where they were getting down and dirty, they were going helping out at food kitchens and coming up with different ways to serve and you know how to practically help. They were learning some counseling skills and things like that. And then the Bible and theology people were the ones who were studying doctrine and biblical languages. And there was this funny little competition between the two groups. You know, they would tease us for being too intellectual. And we would kind of, I, I wouldn't say we, because I didn't really like the, the division between the two, but, but the Bible and theology would kind of tease the ministry people for being too simplistic about the faith. Just be nice and loving to people. What, but what do you believe in? You know what I mean? What are you actually saying? When you say, the, when you say do you believe in Jesus, do you know what you're even talking about? What are you talking about? And so there was this interesting back and forth. And I thought, you know, that, that image that was there in that college was an indication of the division within the human person, the division between the head and the heart of the person. And I thought, well, what we really need is to become integrated human beings. The head and the heart you need, need to be united. And so when I started studying Orthodox theology, and I won't get into how that all took place right now, but I started reading about things that were actually talking about that. 
and some of the church history was helpful and some of the the different philosophical writings on mystical theology and things like that. But the thing that really helped me to understand what orthodoxy is and what the implications are was when I started reading the lives of people who actually lived it out. And I was at Half Price Books here in Linwood at one point in time. And I saw a book. I don't know if you know, in Greece, they publish the titles in the opposite direction. I don't know if it's throughout Europe, but at least in Greece, they, you know, we're used to having our books this way, but they publish their titles the other way. So I was looking through early on in my Orthodox days, and I saw one spine that was backwards, and it said, Papadopoulos. Like, Papadopoulos, that's, okay, that's Greek. I wonder what it is. And I pulled the book off of the shelf, and it didn't, the early version didn't have an icon or anything on it. It just had kind of this flowery border, and it said, The Garden of the Holy Spirit. And it said, uh, Elder Yakovos of Evia. And I decided to check it out. And it's just the story, the life and story of this, this man. And it was one of the things that showed me what the application of the belief to everyday life looks like. Another book that did that for me was called uh, Contemporary Ascetics of Mount Athos, which is kind of a funny, long title that doesn't seem that appealing. And actually, the, the volume I found happened to be volume two. There's two volumes. So Contemporary Aesthetics of Mount Athos, volume two. I found it at the used bookstore also. But that's another one that changed my life. Because, again, it showed me how people took this belief system and put it into practice. They actually lived it out. They're living sacrificial lives. They're living lives that were undividedly focused on loving God and loving other people. And their lives were not easy either. A lot of times we think of the lives of saints and you think, oh, whatever, you know, they had it so great and they're just holy people and they're coasting their way to heaven or something like that. But what I saw is people who, who suffered for what was most important. We suffer hard like to, to increase our savings account. We work hours on end so that we can have not just enough food, but the kind of food we like. You know, we work hard and strive and toil to look decent, you know, to maintain our appearance. And those are, I'm not saying that those are terrible things, but, but what I saw in, in the lives of the saints and elders is people who, they were taking the, the amount of resolve and desire that that we would have for some of the immediate things in life and they were applying that desire to God and it helped me realize that the desires that we do have can be directed to God it's incredible wait there are people who actually pray a lot and just talk about praying a lot you know what I mean there are people who endure sufferings really for Christ's sake and like I said the homily not just St. Paul back in the, you know, the early apostolic days, but contemporary people. So it created a connection.
Um, you guys ever heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Yeah, so, no. He's, he wrote a multi-series, um, multi-volume work called the Gulag Archipelago, Orthodox Christian, who talked about the, the persecution and tyranny that took place under communism. And it's kind of an expose of what took place and uh, a, a memoir of his experiences. And then also a philosophical and even theological reflection on what happened. And on the nature of humanity as someone who, has, who saw what humans are capable of, trying to actually literally suck the life and will out of other people. And rather than becoming jaded and hardened by it, um, he kind of analyzed it and thought, okay, if, if he were to maintain his theological presupposition, meaning his belief in God, how, could, how can we interpret what these humans are doing? And he saw in them, and so, you know, you need to read his books and his reflections to really get, get a sense of um, who he is and what he believed in. But he said the, the longest journey that a human person can take, I think he might have said a man can take, is this 30 centimeters from his head to his heart. Have you heard that saying? And it's absolutely true. What do we mean? Maybe I'll open it up to you guys. We love speaking about the heart and the idea of the heart. It feels nice and meaningful. But what, but what do we mean when we're talking about integrating the, the head and the heart? Can you guys think of what, what we mean? Yeah. What you, I'm currently reading uh, St. Porphyrios. St. Porphyrios, yeah. This guy into that part where he says you pray in silence from the heart. It says you tell you, you talk to yourself inside, but you feel it in the heart. Mm-hmm. That's in your prayer. That's how you're going to get to God faster. Just, here's the other thing. This is, that's what they mean by don't tell your left hand what your right hand's doing. If you're praying in silence, the devil can't figure out what you're trying to do. <laughs> he said, especially if you're praying from the heart mm-hmm. and the head. He says the devil can't get in to disrupt you because you have And I've tried it. You have to really seriously focus to just talk, pray in silence and say the words to yourself in silence. It's mm-hmm. a defeat, and it forces you. You start feeling it from the heart the more that you do it. Mm-hmm. Has that been a good book for you? They've all been good books, but yeah, that's, he's... Yeah. Yes, he's, he, he's the kind of guy, I, would, I mean, he put his mind in something, you weren't going to stop him. Yeah, he's reading the book called Wounded by Love, by Saint Por- about the life and teaching of St. Porphyrios. And that there are a few books that I would consider to be a real, like a true gift to our times, the times in which we live. And that's one of them. Um because he was a person who was, a, was an integrated human being, a person. So what, what else do you guys think of if you think of the heart or uniting the head and the heart? <coughs> yeah. Just putting your intention and actions in harmony. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, unifying your intentions and your actions. Yeah. Overcoming hypocrisy, you could say. Yes. And a lot of us, we've just become like serial experts at hypocrisy in this day and age that we live in. We don't call it hypocrisy anymore. We call it ideology, you know, but still it's the same thing. It's hypocrisy. 
And that's right. And the, the struggle is to realize that you can't, you really can't live up to your expectations of yourself, but you can, str- you can strive. Why? That's one of the things that's beautiful about the Orthodox life. What is, what is the goal of the Orthodox life? Can anyone tell me based on your exposure that you've had to Orthodoxy? What is the goal? Theosis, what does that mean? You're right. To be like God, to be, to be united with God. And when does that union with God end? Never. So, so that's part of the excitement and the adventure of setting out to, like when Christ says, be perfect as I am perfect. What does that mean? There's a little nuance in that in the, the language that he uses. The language that he uses is more like that of maturation rather than attainment of some state of serene, static, serene perfection. So if you set out for union with God, then it's a, you know, it's a journey that has no end. And that's, that's really motivating. Unless you're a total consumer like a lot of us are, and this is where a lot of healing needs to take place in our lives and our minds, because we, we want something that's satisfying, but when we seek satisfaction and then we attain it, we're not satisfied by it. And that's why a lot of people with, I don't want to slam any, anyone's theology or beliefs, but that's why a lot of people in the West, Western world of theology are dissatisfied with their belief. You know, that idea, I've been saved, now what? Now what? I'm not satisfied with just being saved. And then they'll try to figure it out. Well, isn't God enough for you? Yeah, he is, but I don't know what to do with that. Now what? And that's, that's where there's been a disconnect. The Western world has become more, the Roman Catholic became more intellectual. The Protestant world was also very intellectual for a while, and then it became very emotional too. But I would say... Orthodoxy, of course, I'm always giving a sales pitch for orthodoxy, <laughs> but has maintained the, the heart of the faith, which is integration of experience and belief, you know, together. So just a few things to, to think about, talk about as, as we're starting today. Now, we want to talk about the Incarnation. Do you guys know what incarnation means? Take on flesh. Incarnate, I wrote incarnate, you said that. Incarnation. Yeah, to become, basically, it really means, literally, to become, like, in flesh. To take on a, the flesh or the body, you know. So when we talk about the incarnation, and we'll get into it, <laughs> I just don't want you to think, I don't want to presume that everyone automatically knows even what that word means. So would that be like carnal, this flesh, right? Flesh. Carnal. Yeah. My, I hate saying it. I was, I was telling myself I'm going to try to avoid saying it, but since you, right. since you mentioned it, some way back in youth group, I had a pretty good youth pastor and youth group. He challenged us in many ways. He would say, he actually used the word incarnation on occasion. And he would say, no, we, we had this Mexican restaurant we loved going to. 
as teenagers. And he would say, have you ever had carne asada? Carne asada, you know, it's like, it means meat. Meat. And he's like, so God became meat, he would say. But, but, but what you're talking about, car, like carnal carnality is also just, it's, it's when the flesh is looked at as a, an end in itself. You know what I mean? A, a source, a, a hungry creature to be satisfied or something like that. So that's what carnal desires or the flesh. Like there's a, there's a distinction in the Greek language between, uh, and I don't know if I've told you guys this before. And we'll, maybe I'll do it again. But uh, two, two Greek words. Oh, I always forget how to do this letter. Sarks and soma. Um, and uh, sarks is the word for flesh. It just means like the body and the fleshly desires. And soma means like the, the, the body um, as created in the image of God. The body is like the when we talk about the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's a, there's a, a nuance in the, uh, in the New Testament and in Christian discourse about the way that we're supposed to, to live out our life as a body because like, we, we're, we believe that the, the body has its place. It is to become a temple of the Holy Spirit, so we're not just trying to escape it. Yeah, not to become Gnostic, which is a temptation. It's a really amazing temptation if you, you know, if you want to have fun with that and think that there are no consequences, or if you just want to live a, like a um, self-destructive, ascetical life. Both of them, Gnosticism always leads to, leads to self-destruction. So let's talk about the incarnation today. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son and Word of God who without suffering any change to his divinity became man and restored humanity to its original glory. Once while walking with his disciples, Jesus asked them, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? This is in Matthew 16. And they answered, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, the holy prophet Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And the world has never been at a loss for opinions concerning Christ. A huge turning point in my personal life, my personal Christian life, was when I started wondering, questioning, whether or not I knew what I meant when I said the, the name Jesus Christ, when I said Christ. We would just say Christ, and I just assumed that I, I that I understood what I meant. And if I was talking to someone else, I presumed that we meant the same thing. And uh, while it's well intentioned, it, it was it was naive. And especially if you look around and you see all the different versions of Christianity that are, yeah, diverse. Yes, diverse, but disparate too. Not just diverse, but um, very different and at odds with one another, you know? Is Christianity for me to, to suffer till the day that I meaningfully suffer? Is it to love? Is it to, is it to do social justice work? Is it to be blessed and to have material abundance? You know, what, what is it? Is it to believe that certain people are predestined to heaven and hell? <clears throat> is it to be once saved and always saved? 
all of these different views of Christianity, speaking of this, using the same words, but meaning different things. And there's a part of me that wonders, and I try not to jump to this conclusion unless I, I have a direct relationship with someone with whom I'm talking to about this. But, but some of these things cause me to wonder if, if people who are using the same words but meaning different things, if they are actually worshiping the same God. Are they worshiping the same God? It's a question worth considering. But also, it's the question always needs to be right, act, directed right back to us so that we're not going around making fun of other people. Because at the, at the root of everyone's religious pursuit, it really is, even if it's a, a misguided one, it is a desire for something that's real and something that's good. But we're, what we're talking about here, again, is what we mean when we say Christ and we say that we believe in him. Yeah. I noticed like a lot of people within the church, like priests and just people I listen to, I hear the word Christ used. Yeah. Outside the faith, I hear people use the word Jesus. Jesus. I'm not saying they always yeah. do one or the other, but it's more often like yeah. Protestants talk about Jesus and then like within the church I hear Christ. It's true. It doesn't seem super fixed, but it's just maybe it's an emphasis thing. It is an emphasis thing, because Christ is more is is more of a a, a theological term. He is the anointed one. That's Christos means anointed, the Messiah of Israel, the fulfillment of the expectation in the Old Testament, and the one to you know. It's more loaded. It's more loaded. Jesus is a reference to the person, the man who became flesh. You know, and and whom the name that they referred to him as. And when people <clears throat> use that, there's, there's more of a, a, a more of a subjective in, implication to it. Like, it's different like my, oh, well, my, I relate to Jesus in this way. When you say Christ, it's, there's a more of an objectivity to it. Now, not that Christ could ever be viewed as impersonal. But there's been a shift again in Western, especially Protestant theology, where it's kind of this me and Jesus mentality. You know what I mean? And so... <clears throat> Christ seems like an, almost like an enthroning. So Christ is more, it is more of an enthroning. It's more, um, there is something more respectful. But when we, when, when we say the Jesus prayer, for example, we call him by name, but we always refer to him as Jesus Christ. But we say Lord Jesus, but usually we attach Jesus to, to one of his titles or descriptions too, to help, um, to, to elevate it, you know what I mean, to, to qualify what it is we mean when we're saying it. But you're right. I grew up in, in that background and I know, I've noticed the same thing. And actually, I gave a homily several years ago and I called it, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. And I was trying to make a point, actually, by using that. But uh, I was talking to someone about it who was a, a seminary student. And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, they teach us in seminary not to use the name Jesus alone like that. So it's, a, it's an interesting question that you ask. So... 
the world has never been at a loss for, loss for opinions concerning Christ. <clears throat> In fact, I went to a church many years ago where the priest said, it doesn't matter what you believe when you come here, but we find our commonality in using the same words. And by using, by using the same words, we unite our varied experiences and we become one. My wife and I walked out of there and we were like, well, we're not going back there. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was rough because it was, it was a beautiful place in some ways. But uh, it was in the Episcopal Church. We'd come from a very like, conservative Episcopal Church in California. And we visited one up here. And uh, it ended up being just a visit. So Christ has been called everything from a great moral philosopher and religious genius to a fraud and deceiver to the greatest salesman in the world. Um, all of these views, to one degree or another, reflect the hopes and fears of those who hold them. For we, we human beings have the unfortunate tendency to see in Christ whatever it is that we want to see. So we have to learn, and this is me commenting again, so we have to learn, our goal is to, to learn where, I, one of the, one, sorry, I interrupt myself all the time. I interrupt myself after I've interrupted myself. Um, <clears throat> there's something I like to say, that we're all right and we're all wrong. Everyone's right in some ways, and everyone is wrong in some ways. So if you encounter someone who has a skewed view on who Christ is, they say he was just um, a, a creation, that he's not the God-man, as we would say. But they live, of, like, like the Mormons, you know, they, they, they live a very like, beautiful family-oriented life, and they give, they serve others. Honor, we can honor the good, we can see the good, but that doesn't mean that we're wholesale accepting everything. Do you understand? And in fact, just like you and I were agreeing on a couple minutes ago, we have to see the good and the bad within ourselves too. I get certain things right, but I also get a lot wrong. And I need to be willing to be corrected. Because me being corrected about what I'm inaccurate or wrong about is is necessary for my healing. Because if, if I'm wrong and I don't care, then, then I'm taking the place of God in my life. And that's a big temptation in our age of individualism. So we have what it is in the tendency to see what we want to see, but what about the real Jesus? What about the, the truth about this itinerant preacher from Galilee? After hearing all of these different theories about his identity, Jesus then asked his disciples, but whom do you say that I am? So who do people say that I am? That's an interesting kind of sociological question. But the question, the most important question that most of us would need to answer is, 
Who do you say that I am of Christ? Who do we believe that Christ is? And in one way or another, this question is asked of every person. So it's the most important question that we will ever be asked for the answer will determine our eternal destiny. And what we believe about Jesus Christ determines how we will relate or fail to relate to him. If Jesus was just a man like any of us, no more or no less, then what we think of him matters very little. If, however, Jesus is who he claimed to be, our relationship to him is of decisive importance. One thing that we can agree on is that the world has never been the same since the time that Christ was on earth. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, virtually everyone, even if they have a false view of who he is, I mean, they, most people have heard the name of Jesus. Although I think the enemy's trying to change that these days, you know. But um, the world has never been the same. So to, all of, to, to this all-important question, Simon answered, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. By confessing Jesus to be Christ, like we were just talking about, Simon acknowledged him to be the long-expected Messiah of Israel. That word, that Hebrew word Messiah is translated as Christos in Greek. Anointed one or chosen one. The hope of all the world. By confessing him to be son of the living God, he acknowledged Jesus to be God. Because you can't be a son of God without being what God is. And this is why many people, like there were, there were these little tense dialogues that Christ had with the Jews throughout the, the Gospels. Where he would relate himself to God and they would know what he, what he meant. That he was claiming to be divine. So to be the son of God means to be what God is. So he acknowledged Jesus, he acknowledged himself to be God. Since, since we have already examined Christ's role as Messiah, let's focus on the second part of Simon's confession, the divinity of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Son of God means that he is one of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son of the Father. Christ is not merely a messenger from God, but as we say in the Creed, very God of very God, or true God of true God. So he's, he is God himself. And not just an offshoot, but God who became man for our salvation. At his conception by the most blessed Virgin Mary, the eternal Son and Word of God took upon himself our human nature in its entirety and became man. So we read in John 1, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And of course that word is, that's another Greek, funny Greek word. You guys have probably all heard of the word logos. Logos. There's another Greek word. Um, graphi. Like, logos is different than, than the word, like a written word. There are multiple words for word in Greek. But, um, but logo, logos means more than um, a spoken word. But it means meaning, purpose, intent. Um, means a lot. It's a technical term. It means, I heard one theology professor say, when you talk about the logos of, 
of God. It's like, this is God's thing, he said. It's not just something that God spoke, but it is of God, from, from and of and about. It ex- expresses and reveals the intention of God. And the intention of God isn't, isn't anything other than God himself. So there's a depth to that word when we, when we hear that term logos or word, especially in the Gospel of John. Thus, Jesus Christ, we would boldly proclaim, is both God and man. And Christians have always proclaimed this from the very beginning. The church's teaching about this is called the doctrine of the incarnation, meaning enfleshment, and may be summarized in this way. So, point number one. Jesus Christ is one of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son and Word of God the Father. When he became man, he did not cease being God. We have already seen that each person of the Trinity is Catholic. Now, that's a funny word to use in our Western world because we think the word Catholic means Roman Catholic. But the, the word in Greek, Catholic, literally means just according to the fullness. It's in its fullness. So each sums up within himself the whole of the Godhead or the, the wholeness of the divinity, you could say. Thus, when we encounter Christ, we encounter God himself. So to encounter Jesus Christ is, you could say, to encounter no less than God. You know what I mean? It's not just a bit of God or, or an aspect of God, but to come into contact with God himself. For in him, we hear in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The fullness of the divinity is present in the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. So that he's one of the Holy Trinity. And the second point is that Christ became a real man, having a human body and a rational soul. There is no essential aspect of human nature which Christ did not share. We read in Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto us, unto, unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So one of the, one of the, the patristic sayings, one of the early Christian sayings about the incarnation is that... Um, How does it go? Let's see. How do I want to say it? I'm thinking of of one of the of Saint Irenaeus, but I'm getting my quotes mixed up in my mind. Um, okay, that which is not assumed is not healed. So that which is you guys ever has anyone ever encountered that for, that term? Meaning there are people who wouldn't, it's easier to, to rationalize the encounter between God and man by saying that somehow God changed or he infused his divinity into something. These are all rationalizations. They're all, they're, they're, they are human attempts at understanding what is divine rather than through faith accepting what's been revealed. And so every heresy, every departure from the traditional Christian teaching about 
the person of Christ, is has always been an att- virtually always an attempt at comprehending the mystery of the incarnation. <laughs> you know how God could become man without ceasing to be what He is. And so, when we talk about God becoming man and becoming completely what we are, you know, from head to toe, every sense, every ability, every, you know, his will, his senses, his appetites, his desires, everything. It wasn't like he had, you know, divine desires, but not human desires or divine will, but not human will. But he became completely what we are, so as to sanctify what we are. So the teaching is that if there was any aspect of the human identity, the human being that he had did not assume, then that aspect could not have been healed, and therefore the hum- the whole of the human person could not be redeemed, could not be restored to its identity as. Um, a member of the kingdom of God. That which is not as assumed is not healed. The third point. In becoming man, Christ assumed human nature in its entirety. So because man is created, so he became a real man, and then human nature in its entirety, which is what I was starting to talk about here. Because man is created in the image of the Holy Trinity, each human being sums up within himself the totality of human nature. So like, you're no less or more human than I am. We are human by, both you and I are fully human by virtue of having been, been conceived, we would say. Not, even, not just born, but conceived. You know, someone is a full human person at the moment of conception, no less or no more. Now, we compromise what it means to be a human through our unnatural decisions and selfish desires and things. But in each human being is summed up the fullness of human nature. Thus, Christ as man is united essentially to every man. He's one with the Father and the Holy Spirit according to his divinity and one with each of us according to his humanity. So God can relate to us personally and directly by virtue of having experienced what it means to be what we are. It's seemingly impossible. It's, it's, it's inexplicable that God could become man. And I like to talk about this around nativity time every year, around Christmas time every 